There we go. All right. Welcome back, everybody. We're on week eight uh, out of 12. So we're at the home stretch, kind of. So we'll, we'll roll with it. Um, let's pray, and then we'll jump into tonight's conversation. Uh, Father, thank you for giving us the evening to be together. We're grateful for what you have to show us, and we thank you that you have done everything that's required to save us. And we pray that you would just help us to keep trusting you more and more. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so tonight we're talking about the offices of Christ. So this is sort of the last tail end of last week's uh, conversation on um, the, the work of Christ. So we talked about Christ's uh, substitutionary atonement, um, that was the bulk of it. We didn't really get all the way through the work of Christ. So we're going to just finish that up real quick. Um, it won't take very long to work through these. And then we're going to spend most of our time tonight on the Holy Spirit. So uh, the offices of Christ, what we mean by this is that the three Old Testament offices of prophet, priest, and king are perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So when you read the Old Testament, these are the three primary roles that are played by leaders in in Israel. It is um, the prophet, uh, the priest, and the king. And so when we say that Jesus holds these offices, we mean that he actually fully embodies them perfectly, uh, unlike the earthly kings or the earthly priests or or prophets um, before him. So we'll just walk through each of these kind of at at a time, and um, we'll show you some verses that relate to it. Uh, So Christ as prophet, uh, a true prophet uh, proclaims uh, God's word to people. That's what what they do. That's the office. It's the job of a prophet to proclaim what God has said. There are false prophets. Uh, The Bible talks about them. Um, Says somebody is a false prophet, they should should be killed for claiming to speak on behalf of God when they're not. So there is a pretty high price to not being a true prophet. But Prophets spoke, they proclaimed what God had to say. But Jesus' prophetic authority is actually vastly superior to any of the Old Testament prophets before him uh, because he speaks God's words as God. So, so he fulfills the role of prophet to speak God's words perfectly, truly, completely because he is God himself. So he has the, the ultimate authority to speak for God as God. Uh, a few passages to look at on this one. Um, in Deuteronomy, the, Moses talks about the prophetic office. And Moses was, in a sense, I think the first true Old Testament prophet. Um, maybe you could argue somebody before him. Uh, but it was, it's pretty clear he was, he was the primary spokesperson for God's people in the in the time of, um, uh, from the Exodus onward, forward. Um, So in Deuteronomy 18, verse 18 and 19, here's what he says about this. Um, Let's see. He says, I will raise up, this is what God is saying to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Uh, And so he goes on to continue to talk about what a false prophet is and and those kind of things. But 
the, the key in this is that God is telling Moses that he is going to raise up a prophet from among them uh, who, who will actually perfectly speak God's words. And we know that this is a, uh, a reference to the future work of Jesus Christ as the prophet. But there were lots of other prophets that stood uh, in his place and were sort of a type of Christ to the people in this regard. We had Samuel uh, in the times just before the kings and during the kings. Uh, you had uh, obviously the prophets of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jonah and, and Micah and on, on and on, right? Most of the books of your Old Testament are named after the prophets who, who wrote them and spoke the words. But Christ comes into the world to be the full, complete uh, fulfillment of the prophecy, of the role of prophet. Uh, so since Jesus is the true and perfect prophet, he is the ultimate source of truth about God, ourselves, the meaning of life, the future, right and wrong, salvation, heaven and hell. And we get to this when Jesus talks in John fourteen six. Uh, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. When he says he's the truth, he's speaking here in that role as the one who would speak God's words on God's behalf and get us to the truth. So Christ is our prophet. We see that. Secondly, Christ serves as the fulfillment of the role of priest. We spent a lot of time last week talking about the priesthood uh, as it connects to the sacrificial system. So we're not going to spend a ton of time unpacking this, but um, while a prophet speaks God's words to the people, a priest's role in the Old Testament was to represent the people before God and represent God before the people. So he was a man who stood in the presence of God as a mediator um, between God and the people of Israel but the priestly work of Christ involves both atonement and intercession. So, um, so yeah, the, the Old Testament priest would first have to go sacrifice for his own sins so that he could then represent the people for, uh, before God with their sins. Uh, and it was a whole thing. There was all kinds of rituals around it because there had to be purification. There had to be uh, sacrifices made. And it was, a, it was a pretty intense thing to be... Uh, a priest um, in the Old Testament understanding of that. So when we talk about uh, Jesus as our ultimate high priest, like Hebrews, the book of Hebrews spends a, a lot of time on Jesus being the, the priest that we truly need, the one who can truly represent us before God and, and then be our intercessor as well to represent us to God and God to us. And so we see that in the death of Christ and his atonement. And we see that also in his uh, ascension as he now sits in heaven interceding for us. So dealt with all of that uh, mostly last week. So if you missed that, we can, you can go back. They're all, they're all online for you, but we won't belabor that much. And so then the third office that we're going to touch on quickly here is uh, that Christ also serves as the fulfillment of the kingly office. So he's not only the prophet and the priest, he's also the divine king. Unlike the kings of Israel, uh, who were intended to foreshadow the Messiah, Jesus' reign as the messianic king is in no way limited. He rules over all creation and for all time. So when we talk about Christ as king, it means that he fulfills that third office. And the king would in the old testament would represent the the authority of god to the people 
And so there was a role for the kings to play to show us in an earthly way um, that, that God is our ultimate authority. He bestows a little bit of that authority on this earthly king, whether that be David or Solomon or all of Solomon's sons, that, that kind of a mixed bag of good and bad uh, kings in there. But all of these kings it, through the line of David uh, prepare us for Christ, get us to Christ because Christ comes through the line of David uh, but he truly rules not just over a small kingdom like Israel, but he rules over the whole world, all of creation. And and he will actually not just rule for a temporary period of time, but for eternity. So that's what makes Christ greater uh, than the kingly offices as we think of them. So, so I just wanted to touch on that, that we don't have a ton to say on this. I just thought I'd finish up that last section without going too late last last time. Uh, so just any other questions to follow up with that or if you want clarification or anything from last week that you're, that you're dying to ask about that we didn't touch on um, before we move into the Holy Spirit. Okay, great. So let's talk about the Holy Spirit. This is where we'll spend most of our, our time. Um, here, here's what we're talking about. The Holy Spirit is a fully and completely divine person who possesses all the divine attributes. God the Spirit applies the work of God the Son. The Spirit's distinct role is to accomplish the unified will of the Father and the Son and to be in personal relationship with both of them. So let's go back several weeks from where we are now. When we talked about the Trinity, we talked about God as one God in three persons. Each person is fully God. Um, they're all distinct persons, although they're unified in, in God and in his nature and character. And so we're talking about the third member of the Trinity, and we refer to him as the Holy Spirit. Um, that's how the Bible describes him. And so he is a fully and completely divine person. He's um, That's important. We're going to talk about what that means when we talk about him as a person. He possesses all the divine attributes of God because he is God. Um, he applies, his role primarily is to apply the work of Jesus. And uh, his distinct role in the relationship between the Father and the Son is to, uh, to accomplish their will and uh, be in relationship with them. So, so we're going to unpack a couple things to, uh, tonight. We're going to unpack the personality of this Holy Spirit, meaning talk about his personhood, and then we're going to unpack the work of the Holy Spirit uh, and what he does. And so there's, there's quite a bit to get through. We'll, we'll try to go um, relatively quickly here. Um, so the personality of the Holy Spirit, here's what we mean. The Holy Spirit is a distinct person, being uh, a distinct personal being, rather, with definitive or definite characteristics. He's not merely an impersonal force, or merely the power of God. And I, I know it just depends on what your background is and your understanding of the Holy Spirit is. And a lot of times we think of the Holy Spirit less tangibly than we think of the Father or the Son. We, we think of the Father because that word denotes something to us, right? So we can kind of envision what that means. Uh, obviously, Jesus is very easy for us to, to recognize and kind of point to because he was 
God who became man. And so the manhood of Jesus Christ is, is something that makes it easy to wrap our heads around him. He, he cloaks himself, or I, that's not the technical answer, but he, he brings upon himself his divine nature with humanity. And, um, and so that, that's easy, relatively easy for us to wrap our heads around, generally. Um, but the Holy Spirit's a little bit harder for us to think of as a person because he feels so intangible. So sometimes we'll refer to the Holy Spirit as it or like it's a, like an inanimate object or a force or a power. And we've got to be careful not to go there because the Bible teaches us he is a person. Uh, he has the characteristics of God within himself. He, he is fully God. And, um, and so we need to recognize that and be careful in our own hearts not to drift into thinking of him as some sort of cosmic force Star Wars situation or something. That, that's just not what he is. He's a, he's a person. So we're going to talk through that. Um, the personal nature of the Holy Spirit, as the Bible teaches it, is evident through his title. Uh, his primary title is Comforter, or sometimes it's translated as Helper. Uh, this is the, the Greek word parakletos. Um, and so that word is the title that is given to the Holy Spirit. It can be translated comforter. It can be translated helper. Um, there's quite a few references here in the Gospel of John. These are all in John's Gospel, but we'll look at them um, as Jesus teaches us about the Holy Spirit. So John 12, 26, to start with here. He says, um, that is not the right reference. Not the right reference at all. Let's hope that some of these are, are so, sort of the right reference. Sorry. Didn't fact check myself very good, good here. Um, okay, here we go. 14, I don't know how 1226 got in there. 14, 16, uh, and 26 is what we're looking at. Okay, so... John 14, 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. So there's that word. This could be translated as advocate. There's a footnote in the ESV for this, uh, or counselor. Uh, it could be translated as comforter as well. So I will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then looking down at verse uh, 26, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus is in this passage uh, preparing to go to the cross. This is very much at the end of his life. This is the, in the upper room. Uh, so it's called the upper room discourse, uh, where basically from chapter 12 uh, through uh, 15 or 16, actually, in John, is, is this whole thing is happening in the upper room just before Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and and uh, is prepared to be crucified. So he's giving his disciples comfort that they will not be left alone when he's gone, when he ascends into heaven, but that he will actually send his Holy Spirit. 
But notice how he uh, refers to him. Um, In verse 17, it says that the world, meaning those who are outside of Christ, cannot receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. If if the Holy Spirit was merely a, a force or power from God, he wouldn't be using this, the pronoun he and him. Um, he's referring to the Holy Spirit as a, as a person. Uh, and so that he does again in verse uh, 26 as well. And then in, uh, let's see if I have, so now I'm, yeah, yeah. Verse 15, or ch- chapter 15, the next chapter, verse 26. It says, but when the helper comes, so there's that, that title again. Whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the helper, there's, this is what we're talking about, his title as helper. And then um, 16 verse 7. Yep. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus is telling his disciples something that they can't fathom, which is it's better that I actually leave because if I don't leave, the Holy Spirit, the helper won't come to you. But if I go, he'll come, I'll send him to you. So that's pretty remarkable to think about that, that we're actually better off with the Holy Spirit than we are having Jesus bodily on the earth. That's what Jesus says. Um, so there's something to that. I think we need to, we'll talk through that in a, in a bit. But um, the scriptures uh, speak of a number of activities of the Holy Spirit. So we're still talking through the personhood of, God, of the Spirit. So he's referred to as a helper. He's referred to as he, not it. Um, we're seeing his personhood there. But the scriptures also speak of him in terms of what he does. So his activities. And I've got this big chart here of, of things. This is just plucked out of the ESV study Bible. Um, if you don't have an ESV study Bible, I would recommend you get one. It's probably the best book. If you had to have one book in your entire life, that's the book to have because it's got so many resources. It's incredible. But look at this. So you've got, these are all the personal actions of what the Holy Spirit does. So the Spirit comforts. The Spirit teaches. A lot of these these first two are in what verses we just read. Um, Spirit teaches, so John 14, 26, 1 Corinthians 2, 13. The Spirit speaks in Acts 8, 29 and Acts 13, 2. The Spirit makes decisions in Acts 15, 28. That's a good one. Let's go to that one. I'm, I'm just kind of, I'm not going to go through every one of these, but I think the ones that, I don't know, stick out to me will go with. Um, so Acts 15 is the part of uh, Acts where they are at the Jerusalem Council. So this is the first really big controversy that the church has to deal with. And the controversy is over whether the Gentiles that are being saved through Paul's ministry, uh, through Paul and Barnabas um, going and preaching the gospel to Gentiles, are those Gentiles fully in Christ without becoming Jews? Uh, that's the question. Because remember, the, the church began with, with and among the Jewish people. 
And so there came a point where it was like, oh, all right. Like, are these Gentiles actually fully in or do they need to become Jewish? And so there's this big, long discussion. That's what chapter 15 is about. Uh, But in verse 28, um, you get to their conclusion. Um, Here's what they say. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. These requirements are about, uh, well, we'll just keep reading. That's what they'll say. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself free from these, you will do well. Farewell. So, so the, the early church, the early apostles had to tell the Gentiles, right, here, here's what needs to happen. And the question was, do they just have to be folded into the, to the Jewish religion and keep the law? Or are they free in Christ? And the answer that the Holy Spirit gave them, right, the Holy Spirit made this decision. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So the Holy Spirit is the one who's leading this and guiding this and telling these, these early Christians what they should do. So we see the Spirit making decisions in that regard. We see the Spirit grieves over sin. Uh, we're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit because of our sinfulness. So he can grieve. He's got personhood. Uh, we see the Spirit overruling human actions. Um, and so there's that. So the Holy Spirit searches the deep things of God and knows the thoughts of God. The Spirit determines the distribution of spiritual gifts. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts towards the end of this evening, so we'll, we'll save uh, 1 Corinthians 12 for then. Uh, the Spirit interprets and brings human prayer before the throne of the Father. Romans eight twenty six and 27 tells us that when we don't have the words to pray, the Spirit who knows the heart of God, who searches the heart of God, uh, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What that means is that when you and I are just at our, at our wits' end and we have no idea how to pray, we can have comfort that the Spirit prays for us. We actually don't have to worry so much about articulating prayer as well as we, we think we should because the Holy Spirit's going to fix it on its way up anyways. So just pray, right? That's, that's the point. Um, the, the Spirit assures believers of their adoption as uh, children of God. And that's Romans 8, 16. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, the Spirit bears witness to and glorifies Christ. And again, we'll hone in on that separately too. So, so anyways, this is a long list of the personal actions that the Holy Spirit uh, does and performs throughout the scriptures. So he's a person. Uh, we're also needing to talk about his deity, that he is actually fully God. So he, here's what we see about this. The Holy Spirit possesses all the divine attributes. So when the Holy Spirit works, it is God who is working. Um, so essentially those verses there will we'll walk you through um, the divine attributes of, that the Holy Spirit has. But I we actually just have a nice convenient chart here too from the ESV study Bible. Um, these are, if we remember from weeks back when we talked about the attributes of God, these are all attributes of God that we talked about 
that the Holy Spirit is eternal. Hebrews 9.14. The Holy Spirit is uh, omnipresent, so he's present everywhere. Psalm 139.7-10 tells us, or says, where can I go from your spirit? The, the answer is nowhere, right? We can't go anywhere and hide from God's spirit. He is he's present everywhere. The Holy Spirit is omniscient, so he knows everything that God knows. The Holy Spirit is omnipotent, so he has all power. And the Holy Spirit is, is holy. He's, that's why he's the Holy Spirit, right? Um, so that's... I just caught that. That was funny. Okay. Uh, yeah, so there, there, that's the qualifier. Whenever, whenever we're talking about the Holy Spirit, there's the word holy and then spirit. So, all right, there you go. Um, so that's, but those are uh, divine attributes that he possesses. So, so I'm just trying to give you the, the overview of his personhood, his, his deity, or the fact that he is fully God. He's, he's not just a power that comes from God. He's not just a force that exists in the, in the world. Um, he, he is actually a divine person uh, who is completely God, as, as the Father and the Son are as well. So uh, we'll, I don't have a slide for questions, but do, do you guys have any questions so far? Uh, we're going to move into the work of the Holy Spirit in, in a minute here. But any questions on the personhood, um, the deity of the Holy Spirit that we can talk through? Just hard to imagine he can be in all of us at the same time. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. yeah. That's right. And that's why he, he, Jesus says he is better than, that it's better that he goes away because Jesus is in, a, in one place at one time. We'd all have to find him somewhere, you know. But, we, but as it is, we have Jesus uh, fully and completely within us through his spirit. Now, obviously, they're distinct persons, right? But he's referred to as the spirit of Jesus. And uh, Jesus says, I will send my spirit. So there, there's distinction there in the Trinity but in an in a interesting sense, the Holy Spirit kind of embodies uh, Jesus in us too. So something to think through there. But that's good. Um, so let's talk through the work of the Holy Spirit then for a little bit here. Um, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in, in nature, but distinct in roles and relationships. So if you remember from back then when we talked about the Trinity, we we made this distinction between their personhood and their unity. So they have distinct roles and relationships. So, so what we see generally in the Bible, this is typical. It's not necessarily always the case, but generally what we see is that the Father is willing. So he's, he wills for things to happen. The Son is accomplishing that will, the will of the Father. And the Spirit is applying the will, and the accomplishment of the Father in Christ. So this is how we, we typically see it go. And one of the best places for this, I don't have the reference on the slide, but Ephesians 1 actually lays that out pretty clearly. Um, you have the Father who, let me get to Ephesians 1, and so we can read a little bit of this. Um, it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places, even as he, the Father, chose us in him, the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he, the Father, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So there you have the will of the Father, uh, determining from before the foundations of the world to set his love on those he would save. And so that's the Father willing. Here, verse 7 says, In Jesus, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So there again, you see the will of God, the Father, uh, being accomplished through the sacrificial death of Jesus. Right? The redemption that we have in Jesus is because God, the Father, uh, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Now, if you look down at verse uh, 13 and 14, it says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So there you have the work of the Holy Spirit in applying the redemption that was purchased for us in Christ through the will of God, the Father. And so you have this word here that when we believed the gospel, we were sealed, secured with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So the reason that we can be confident that we have salvation is because the Spirit himself seals these things in our lives, keeps us secure, holds on to us until the day that we acquire possession of it ultimately in in glory. Um, So, there is a good example of, the, of how the scriptures lay out the work of the Holy Spirit in relation to the work of the Father and the Son. The willingness of the Father, the accomplishing of the Son, and the application of the Spirit. Within the work of the Spirit, we also see he plays a prominent role in the ministry of Jesus. So this is part of the work of the Spirit, but he plays a very prominent role in Jesus' ministry. So first, we're just going to kind of go in order here. Um, The Spirit brings about the incarnation. If you remember from a few weeks back, the incarnation is the doctrine that God, the Son, becomes man, takes on flesh, becomes a person. The thing we celebrate at Christmas most of the time, it's what we should be focusing on at least, Um, we're told that the Holy Spirit is actually the one who brings about that incarnation. If you look at Luke 1.35, we see this, that um, Mary is being told by the angel that she is going to conceive and bear a son. And she says in verse 34, how how will this be since I'm a virgin? So she's going, "I, I know how this works and it shouldn't work, right? And so... The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, 
the Son of God. So there we see the, the Holy Spirit's involvement in Jesus's uh, conception. Now this is not, uh, this has been twisted and manipulated and made to be really, really grotesque uh, in some uh, cults and, and other religious explanations. But all that this is telling us is that the Holy Spirit performed a miracle in Mary's womb to conceive a baby outside of any of the normal ways in which that happens, right? And so that, that's where we're seeing the Holy Spirit bringing on the incarnation. Fast forward to Jesus's adulthood and his public ministry, and we see that the Spirit anoints Jesus for his public ministry. This happens at his baptism um, in, in Matthew 3. Um, and I believe, let's see, let's let me look at Luke 3 as well here, since I'm right there. Um, yeah, Luke 3, 20 and 20, 21 and 22. Yeah, the baptism story there. Uh, when all the people were baptized, this is by John the Baptist. And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. So he took on the form of a dove. He took on bodily form in that moment and rested on Jesus. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So again, we, when we talked about the Trinity, we, we really talked about this, this moment. It's recorded in Matthew 3. It's also recorded in Luke 3. And so uh, we're seeing the Holy Spirit is actually the one who anoints Jesus uh, for his public ministry. We also see that the Spirit fills and leads Jesus throughout his public ministry. So he did public ministry for three years. Um, and during those three years, the Spirit is a continual uh, presence in the ministry of Jesus Christ. So Luke 4, since... I'm just fortunate that I'm here. So this is great. Luke 4, uh, verse 1 says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, the Jordan River, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Uh, And there he's led into the wilderness. He's filled with the Spirit. So he's being empowered by the Spirit. And this was something that happened all throughout the Old Testament as well when when God would, during the period of the judges, when God would raise up a judge, his spirit would, in that moment, for that purpose, for that time, indwell that, that person's life to empower them for the task. Uh, the kings of Israel were uh, often filled with the spirit and then the spirit would, would remove himself from them to signify that they're no longer empowered by by God for the task. And so there was a sense in which the spirit would come and go during the Old Testament period. Uh, but in Christ and moving forward into our lives since the ascension and the day of Pentecost, we now know that the spirit never leaves us. He's, he's just a constant presence in the life of the believer uh, forever. But, um, but in the time before Jesus, he was kind of there to empower and then he'd be removed depending on the will of God in that moment here we see Jesus becoming filled with the spirit and then goes into the wilderness there you can read Luke 4 it's the story of uh, of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights um, 
not, not recommended for us to do that. Um, that's, that's a bad idea. But Jesus did it because he was, you know, able to have, you know, angels minister to him. So unless you have that, you know, going on, don't, don't do that. Um, but he, he was hungry. The devil then uh, tempts him with three temptations. But the, because the spirit is empowering him and dwelling him, uh, we, are, we see him w- withstand those temptations. In verse 14, we, he leaves the wilderness and he begins his ministry. It says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding region. Uh, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So there, as the, Jesus returns from the wilderness, he returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, where he does the bulk of his Earthly ministry is in the countryside of Galilee. And then uh, verse 18 again tells us this is Jesus actually preaching in the synagogue in Nazareth, his home, his home synagogue. And he reads the Isaiah scroll and he turns to this passage that says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this is a quotation from the book of Isaiah, and it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus reads that scroll, and then in verse 20, he says, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of the synagogue were all fixed on him. And he began to say, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he says that that passage is about me. So that's, this is the you know, first century version of a mic drop. That's basically what's happening. Okay, so he just drops the mic and sits down and everybody's like, what are you going to say about that? He's just like, oh, what do you want me to say? That's all about me. So, all right, that's Jesus doing that. Uh, we also see the Spirit plays a prominent role in the atoning work of Christ. Now, if you turn to uh, Hebrews 9, verse 14, uh, <clears throat> we'll see this. Um, so it says, we'll back up to verse 13 just to get the full sentence here. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled uh, persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So Hebrews 9 and 10 really hone in predominantly on the sacrificial death of Jesus and how that's better um, and actually sufficient to take away sins versus the old, the old covenant uh, sacrificial system. But here in verse 14, we're seeing that the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit. So there's another divine attribute of God, right? His e- eternality. He's, a, he's an eternal spirit. Offered himself without blemish to God. So through the spirit, Jesus' sacrificial offering to God is applied to our lives in a, in a prominent way. So, so he plays a role in the atoning work of Christ as that applies to us. And then uh, finally on this um, is that the Spirit also raises Jesus from the dead. So in uh, Romans 8, verse 11, 
we see that Paul acknowledges the role of the Holy Spirit in raising Christ from the dead. Um, Verse 11 says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead uh, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So so the Spirit and the Father were both engaged in the, the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. That's an amazing thing. So the Spirit has a prominent role, a major role throughout the ministry of Jesus from his incarnation all the way through his resurrection and every thread in between that. We see the Spirit at work in Jesus. We also see the Spirit at work in us, in God's people. So we're going to spend some some time talking through how the Spirit, again, we're talking about the person and work of the Spirit. So this is the work of the Spirit in God's people. The Spirit is the primary person of the Trinity at work in applying the finished work of Jesus in the lives of God's people. So I I showed you that already in Ephesians uh, 1.13. But if you want to turn to 2 Corinthians 1, we can look at that passage as well. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Um, that word guarantee could also be translated perhaps down payment, but that we're seeing essentially the same thing that is coming out of Ephesians 1, this idea that the Holy Spirit is basically our, our guarantee, our inheritance th- that Christ has won our salvation for us. So the Spirit is the primary person within the Trinity that, that applies the finished work of Christ to us. We see in the book of Acts, um, the book of Acts, um, we sometimes refer to it as the Acts of the Apostles. Um, some people suggest we should actually call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit because he's actually the main character in that, in that book very clearly. Um, but in the book of Acts, the Spirit's work was often immediately seen in miraculous gifts such as speaking in tongues. That happened in, I think, chapter 2, right, of Acts. Um, We see healings. We see prophesying. And while the Spirit may still choose to work in these ways, and we'll talk about that in a a bit here, um, it is really the fruit of the Spirit that is the normative and necessary evidence of God's work in someone's life. So I want to hone in on this issue of the fruit of the Spirit for a little bit. Because... We'll talk about, we will, we'll talk about tonight some of the miraculous gifts that we see in the Bible and what that means. And I, you know, I, I don't know. So I'm just going to wing it with you guys. But, but we're, we're going to talk about some of that tonight. But I want to I really hone in on this. That, uh, Nate and I were just talking about this in the office today. That, that we're, the, the primary central work of the Spirit um, is not in the miraculous things that happened it's in the day-to-day grace and kindness of jesus applied to us through the spirit and building us up into his character and that's defined in the fruit of the spirit 
So the fruit of the Spirit are described in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. If you want to take a look at those with me, we, we'll, we'll read through them. They're probably familiar to most of you, um, but it's worth looking at. And the, we'll just read these first, and then we'll, I'll finish the rest of that slide. But um, So I'll, how about I back all the way up to verse 16 and just read the whole section. Um, down to verse 26. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. In other words, operate your life in such a way that you're attuned to who he is and you're, you're listening to him. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So in case you're a, a, you know, a list keeper, you know, he didn't say this right now. He, he threw that in too, just for those of you who like the lists. Um, and so he says, and things like these. So I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, by do such things, he's talking about this ongoing, unrepentant activity of of these, of these actions. That would be a, a sign, a very clear sign, that you're not in Christ. If, this is the def, if these things are the definition of your life and you have no remorse and no repentance, uh, then he's saying that you won't inherit the kingdom of God. It's not a works-earning thing. It's a, this is the evidence of whether you're in Jesus or not. If, look at the fruit. And so that's where he goes next, verse 22. But... But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So the fruit of the Spirit, as described here, is in contrast to the works of the flesh. Um, so he's basically giving us a, a sort of a litmus test to go, are we, are we in Jesus or are we very clearly not in Jesus? And here's how, here's how you can look at that. Um, but the picture of fruit is important. Because it, it actually teaches us something in itself. Fruit is a slow and gradually growing thing. It, it doesn't just show up overnight. It, it takes a season for fruit to grow. And so this, this is actually the, these, the fruit of the Spirit. We often say fruits as if they're separate things. But they're, it's actually fruit, singular, of the Spirit. These characteristics are what God is going to grow in our lives as we are crucified with Jesus, as we trust in him, as we walk with him, as we repent of our sins. These things 
will gradually and slowly grow in us. And that's really the doctrine of sanctification. We'll, we'll talk through that on us in a couple weeks uh, yet here. But, but I think it's important to know that if these things, if, if you read these things and you go, wow, I don't actually live up to this, this, or this in that list. Well, okay, that's good to know. Recognize those things in your life. Repent of the ways in which your sin has come out of you in those regards. But, but recognize also that there, there's a process here. I don't, I don't think there's a person in this room who would say every one of these, these things described in the fruit of the Spirit are fully and perfectly embodied by them. That would be quite crazy, actually, and I'd love to meet you if that's, if that's you, because I'd say, oh, Jesus, you came back. Well, what, what, what happened? Um, it just isn't, it isn't the reality. Only Jesus perfectly embodied these things without any, without any sin, without any faltering. So we need to recognize that. And, but the fruit of the Spirit, this is the primary way in which the Spirit of God intends to work in our lives. The other way is through empowering believers in Jesus with spiritual gifts, gifts that are meant to build up the church, encourage fellow believers, and glorify Jesus. So the, the primary ways that, G, that the Spirit of God works in us is by growing the fruit of the Spirit in us and by empowering us or gifting us uh, with particular spiritual gifts that, as he sees fit so that we will help build the church uh, encourage each other and glorify Jesus. So the the gifts of the Spirit are described in a bunch of different places in the Bible. There's a bunch of lists of of the gifts, and they're not all identical lists. Um, they they actually some of them have overlap, and some of them are, are fresh and different and unique. But you have Romans twelve three to eight that lays out some of the gifts. You have First Corinthians. Uh, 7 7, and then the bulk of uh, 1 Corinthians on the gifts of the Spirit is 12 uh, 4 through 11. You also have Ephesians 4 7 through 16, and 1 Peter 4 11. These, these passages lay out uh, a variety of spiritual gifts, gifts given by the Spirit to the believers for the, for the uh, upbuilding and, and uh, encouragement and glory. Of Jesus, uh, well, Jesus's people and the glory of Jesus, I should say. So the gifts of the Spirit are uh, there, there's a lot of them, but we we're actually going to look at one list um, in uh, in particular. We'll look at First uh, Corinthians twelve, but before we get there, um, some of the gifts in these lists in Romans and First Corinthians, some of them are related to just natural abilities that God gives us, uh, or, you know, all these are ultimately from God, but some have to do with, like, natural ability, like teaching or showing mercy or administration. Um, leadership is mentioned as a spiritual gift. And so there, there are cer- certain gifts that are just maybe uh, given by God in people's lives, a little more pronounced uh, and a little bit more profoundly so that they can use those gifts in the church and for the good of others. Other gifts that we see in these lists are more supernatural, like the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy, and the gift of healing. And that's really where our mind tends to go when we think of spiritual gifts, or at least what my mind does. I don't know what, where your mind goes, I suppose, but I think a lot of us think uh, about the kind of 
charismatic, so to speak, gifts of the Spirit. And that's, they're there. They're in the lists. And so we, we got to kind of walk through what that means. But um, let's talk through just the clear teaching of the Bible on this issue. So 1 Corinthians 12 uh, and 13. I, I want us to look at these passages together. Um, so if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starts with this um, uh, explanation of the spiritual gifts. Um, and, and here are uh, verse 4 says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. So there's one Holy Spirit that gives all of us this variety of gifts. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So it's to build up the church for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. So wisdom is a spiritual gift given by the Spirit. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the, by the one Spirit. To another, the works of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. So that's discernment, more or less. To, underst- uh, to another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, if you look down uh, at verse 21, it says, uh, well, actually verse 14. It says, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God would arrange the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, what would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. Um, And on our unpresentable parts, we are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lack it, and there that there may be no division in the body, and that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So Paul uses this whole long explanation of the body, right? To look at our human body and all the different parts that make up the body and saying, look, all of it's necessary. You wouldn't be a healthy person. You wouldn't be a full person uh, as God designed you to be if you didn't have all these these parts. And so you can't really say, well, this part doesn't matter, that part doesn't matter, or this part's more important. Right? That's his point. And so then he says, all of you are in the body of Christ. 
The church makes up Christ's body. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. Um, so, but, but then look at this. Verse 29 uh, through 31 are so, so crucial. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you still a more excellent way. So the, the reality is, is that not everyone is gifted in the same ways. Not everyone possesses the same spiritual gifts, nor should we. Now, there are some denominations out there that will say that, um, in, in particular, the one I know of is uh, saying that everyone needs to speak in tongues because that's how you prove you're in Jesus, basically, is what they would say. And, and uh, the problem is, is that Paul literally says, do all speak in tongues, with the implication being no. <laughs> so you, you can't really make the case that tongues... Uh, whatever that means, right, and however that's applied, because all kinds of churches understand that differently. It's a very murky subject to, to begin with. But um, the, the issue of tongues is a complicated issue. But the, what's very clear is that not all of us are supposed to have the same gifts. And so we can't put a gift as a, this is the most important thing, and if you don't possess it, you're not on Jesus' team. That's, that is unfortunately where some churches have gone um, so we got to be careful with that. But, but then I, what I really want to hone in on here is where he goes next. So in chapter 13, remember, this is a letter. He's writing this all in one kind of shot here. And he's saying he's gone through all of these gifts. But then in verse thir- chapter 13, verse 1, he says this, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to receive mountain, remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, but the, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So... Then he goes into an explanation on the, the spiritual gift of tongues in particular in chapter 14. But it's really interesting 
that in between this chapter 12 where he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit and chapter 14 where he's trying to help Corinth like apply some of these gifts of the Spirit, he, he stops right in between and goes, but really we just got to love each other. Like that's the central thing. That's the main thing. That it's not about us demonstrating some crazy charismatic gift of the Spirit. It's about love at the end of the day. And that's what Jesus really truly wants for us. And so um, that's the highest goal for the Christian life. But since I brought it up, we're going to take an excursion uh, down this path of the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. Because I brought it up, so i gotta got to deal with it now. Um, we won't spend a ton of time on this. But um, continue, there's basically two main schools of thought on this uh, in Christian theology. There's continuationists. Uh, sometimes they're referred to as charismatics. Um, basically it means that they believe the supernatural gifts like prophecies, tongues, healings, those, those kinds of gifts um, are still to be in use today. And they still have a place within the church. Okay, that's, so that's one position. The other position is the cessationist view. Cessationists believe that, that those gifts, those particular gifts of the miraculous gifts uh, are not uh, to be used today and were only to be in use during the first century apostolic age. Um, so again, this is broad strokes. This is not super in-depth, but uh, a continuationist would say, yes, the gifts that are mentioned and all these things that we maybe don't know what to do with uh, in, in some circles or maybe see abused in other circles um, still have a place, still have a role, uh, are still given by God. And a cessationist would be on the opposite side and basically say, no, all that stuff was meant for the first century. And their, their primary argument for that is that the people in the first century didn't have the Bible. And so they, they needed God to do these miraculous things in order to show and demonstrate his power. But now that the Bible's here and we, we have all of God's word, uh, those gifts just don't need to be in use anymore. Um, and you know what? You can be a Christian and believe either of these things. You really can. Like, it's okay. Uh, pick one that you think fits best with the, with the scripture. Um, at Springbrook here, we keep this issue as an open-handed issue. Uh, we have people in our congregation who are cessationists, and we have co- people in our congregation who are continuationists or, or charismatic in their theology. And we can worship together, and we can... Uh, be brothers and sisters and unified under Jesus and in love. So we don't take a hard position on this. Um, and so uh, that's, that's really uh, the, the issue for, for me. This is, this is kind of interesting. Uh, I'll get into this. But my personal view, this is just me talking, is I'm a soft continuationist. Okay, so what that means is I believe the Spirit can and does uh, still use supernatural gifts today. But I believe that he does so in a limited capacity and in unique situations. So in my view, it's not the normative work of the Spirit for the church to have the gift of tongues going on or to have prophecy or to have the working of miracles. But I think it's, there's a really hard case, I think, biblically, to say that, the, that those gifts are just done. They're done, you know, and, and the, the main argument that, uh, and I grew up more in that kind of a camp of a cessationist camp and uh, Moody Bible Institute where I was educated as an undergrad 
were cessationists. And so I, I, I'm well aware of the arguments on that side, which is basically an interpretation of what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says that tongues will cease, prophecies will cease, uh, knowledge will cease when the perfect comes. And what they will interpret the perfect is as is the Bible. The problem with that is if you actually read it in context, it's not the Bible, it's Jesus returning for his second coming. So that's the problem, is that you, you can't, you, they're trying to pigeonhole this view. And again, God bless you if you're a cessationist. I have no problem with this. I'm just saying that this has my, been my personal struggle through it and going, I have to kind of hold this with an open hand. I don't, to be real with you, I don't know what the proper application of this is. Even as a pastor, I'm just like, I, I don't know. So like if you come to our, our church service, you're not going to see a lot of miraculous things happening. Uh, one, because I don't, I don't know why, actually. Just because we're not doing it. Like we're not really encouraging it. We're not trying to facilitate it. It's not our, it's not our vibe. Um, and we're just, well, honestly, we're trying to just be about the central work of Jesus Christ and uh, preach the gospel and make the main thing the main thing. But if you have a, uh, if you speak in tongues and you have a, a prayer language, man, God bless you. Like, honestly, I, I have no problem with this. I think that's actually really great. I'd love to hear about it someday. Like, honestly, like those are some things that really in, intrigue me, interest me. Um, but but I, I, don't, I don't have any of the charismatic gifts that I've ever displayed in my life. So practically speaking, I don't, I don't have those gifts given to me. Um, if you do, that's wonderful. But practically speaking, we don't, we don't do a lot of, at, at our church, in our church services, we don't have a lot of room for the charismatic gifts. Um, that's just the reality. And that's, that, that you may like that or you may hate that, but that's, that's where it is. Um, but I still, I still would say that I'm a continuationist. And I think my views are always changing on this a little bit. Like just I don't know. I don't know where it'll all land. Probably not in me speaking in tongues during a service, though. So let's, we'll, we'll land there. Um, but what's interesting is Pastor Chris and I were talking uh, yesterday about this. I was on this, I was writing up this slide and going, so my view is I'm a soft continuationist. And he said, oh, that's funny, because I would have said I'm a soft cessationist. But they're identical views. So, <laughs> so he just, just where he lands and where I land, we just kind of emphasize slightly the other side. But we have exactly the same. It's interesting. So we didn't, we didn't plan that. But he's like, well, what do you mean by that? And I explained, I read the slide. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's what I, that's what I but I would say a soft cessationist. So uh, he keeps an open hand on this, too. I, I keep an open hand. I think all of our elders are in, in that camp where we're like, you know what? God is going to do what he wants to do. And there are situations where we, we do know God is doing miraculous things. We, you hear about this a lot in the Muslim world, uh, where the access to the Bible is pretty much impossible, where Jesus is actually appearing to these people in dreams, and they're coming to faith in Christ. Like, that happens. Um, God is doing miraculous things. I don't think we can rule that out altogether. Um, I, I have actually, there's a guy in our, our church planting network, Acts 29, who shared a story with me about, they're not, they weren't a real big charismatic church and they didn't really do a lot of the prophecy stuff during the service, but he had one guy come up to him at some point and say, hey, this is kind of weird, but I feel like the Lord wants me to say something. And he's like, well, what is it? You know, let's talk about this. And he said, well, I just, I just feel like God wants me to say, Lazarus, come forth. 
And the pastor friend of mine was like, well, it's in the Bible. It can't be wrong for you to get up and say that. Okay, so he gets up and he says that. He says, I think God wants me to say, Lazarus, come forth. And so he says it and he sits down. That's the end of that. At the end of the service, a guy comes up to the pastor and says, my name is Lazarus and I was told to come forth. And this happened. This is a real story. Like, so there are things that happen like that. And we can't rule that out altogether. But is it the norm? No, I don't think. In my, in my view. So that's the, uh, that's the little excursion down the miraculous gifts. I'm going to pause here and open it up for questions because I'm sure there's lots on this. Yes, Beth. I don't know what tongues is. Okay. I'm so sorry. I should explain that. So tongues um, is a, a spiritual gift that it's, it's quite a debated thing. But what you see in the book of Acts is when the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles after Jesus is ascended, the Holy Spirit comes. He empowers them to preach the gospel out in the crowd. And there were people from all over the world that were in this crowd. And everybody heard the message in their own language even though Peter was just preaching in his language. So God translated his words into the language of other people. So on one hand, the the gift of tongues is that, like known languages that are being translated by the Holy Spirit through uh, into people's ears. Um, Where things get more, that's pretty much universally like, yeah, we all agree that the Spirit does that. Where it gets a little bit more complicated is the, this idea of the uh, languages of angels that some people believe that they can speak through the Spirit. So the gift of tongues in that regard is where somebody is speaking a language that they don't understand. They don't know what they're, exactly what they're saying even most of the time. Um, but they're just speaking an unknown language. And, and it kind of sounds strange to most people who are listening to it, or probably even to themselves. Um, and so that's why in 1 Corinthians, um, there's a, also the gift of interpretation. So when you get to 1 Corinthians 14, he explains that nobody should speak in tongues in the church unless there's someone there to interpret those tongues. So that's where the gift of interpretation has to come in. And, and so if somebody says, okay, well, I have this gift of tongues and I'm going to speak it, someone else in the congregation would have to go, well, I can interpret those tongues and speak it in the common language and explain what God is saying through that. So it's very, it's very common in the uh, charismatic uh, churches, Pentecostal churches, um, assemblies of God per, per, uh, you know, have kind of a toned down version of that in a lot of ways, but they, they do that as well. Um, I don't have a lot of firsthand experience with it in, in the church context, Corey does. You should talk to Corey and if, you have one, if you want any more information. Any of you who want information about charismatic things, talk to Corey. But that, yeah, that's a good question. Sorry, I didn't explain that more clearly. So that, that's what the gift of tongues is. Yeah. You said you didn't have much experience. Have you ever heard it? Uh, yes, I've heard people speaking in tongues, but nobody interpreted for me, so I don't know what they said. So. Uh, I think I've had some of that. There's no one to interpret this kind of point. Well, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, um, which, so I I think that that's where the struggle is in um, some of the charismatic denominations. And I'm not trying to beat up on them or bully them or whatever. I just, I think a lot of these churches are doing this 
in an unbiblical way where it's just open-ended, everybody's just babbling away. And Paul specifically in 1 Corinthians 14 says, uh, um, if, um, here, yeah, verse 23, if the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and the outsiders, so non-believers, enter in, will they not say that you're out of your minds? <laughs> Which is like, yeah, exactly. See, so Paul got ahead of it. So he, it's like, but, but you go to a lot of charismatic churches and that's what's happening. Is, yeah yeah yep yeah for sure because it seems like everybody's out of their minds and that's what the bible says and so so i i think there's a there could be a place for it if if it's done biblically and the biblical prescription is in this chapter and yeah it, it's just it's just interesting but you but it's very clear that the, the apostle paul requires an interpreter um if nobody interprets, then then what's the point of it, right? So um, he says, brothers, I come to you speaking in, uh, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you a, some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So teaching, prophecy, knowledge, things in our own languages are more profitable than tongues. That's what he says for one thing. He says lifeless instruments like the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes. How will they know what's being played? If a bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will be ready for battle? So with yourselves, if, you, you're, you, uh, if your tongue, you utter speech that is intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you are just speaking into the air. Um, there are doubtless many languages in the world, but none are without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with uh, yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And then he goes on to talk about how you need an interpreter to do that. So he's not ruling out the gift of tongues altogether. He's just saying there's parameters around this because otherwise you're just crazy people talking nonsense. And he's going, it's like, you know, if you've ever gone to a, you know, when I, when I went down to Guatemala, I don't speak Spanish and they didn't speak English, most of them. So I got to the customs desk and I just handed my passport. She handed it back and we didn't exchange a word. There was just no words exchanged because we, there was no speaking in tongues of either side, on either side in that. So, because we're like, we don't, we're, we're not going to be any good for each other right here. So, so she knew it. I knew it. We were just, we were just there to exchange the paperwork and be done. So, so yeah, that's what, that's, that's an interesting uh, issue though. So, yeah. So I'd, I'd give just, my own thoughts on it, uh, hopefully quickly, and I grew up exclusive cessationist. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, I have now put God in a box in which he cannot operate except for within that box. Mm -hmm. And if we are talking about the infinite almighty God who cannot be contained within this earth, why am I putting him in this little box? But I also say that one of your comments there, the last line, it's the normative work of the Spirit in the church um, is going to be for the love, the edification, yeah. and, and the rest of these things. 
So one of the things that I heard recently was Francis Chan went over to Asia and he was in an area where they did not know, uh, well, it wasn't about tongues, sorry, uh, where he was working with them and there was obvious health issues and he's not a doctor and he goes, the only thing I have is God and he prayed at that moment for that and God healed. And I would say there's another thing with, within this that much of it is on the day of Pentecost and when in about 6, 8, 9, whatever in Acts when they spoke in tongues again, it was evidence that the Holy Spirit, that God through the Holy Spirit was evidencing that this is of God. And then later on, it was for the, I'm trying to say it right, for the work of God in the unsaved, it's not so much the, for the work of God in those who know Him, because we've already got we've got it here. We can talk with each other. We've got the Lord working with us. Yeah. There would be no need for the Lord to step down in here and start speaking a language that we don't know. Mm. It's just a couple comments. Hopefully, it helps. Yeah, that's good. I appreciate that. Um, if you guys want to talk more about this, Corey's available afterwards. All right. Um, so <laughs> we'll, get, we'll move on to the last section here for the next you know, 10 minutes or so, uh, maybe, maybe less even. But um, I want to spend the time l- looking at this last reality, uh, which is that the Spirit and his work exist to glorify Christ. Um, that, that's the primary thing we we learn about the spirit that you know you can get so easily sidetracked uh, on doctrine of the holy spirit when you start to talk about the the gifts and the miraculous and the those and those things undoubtedly are true they they happened historically in the book of acts we know that the spirit manifested those things uh, in a unique way at that time but but the spirit's work is to glorify christ so his work can be easily neglected by by us and I guess that is if we are of a less charismatic persuasion, because the charismatic Christians, they don't neglect the Spirit on this. Now, they may misapply the gifts of the Spirit. We can argue about that at times, but they tend to hone in very strongly on the Spirit. But uh, our, um, you know, where we're at as, as a church, we have the propensity to neglect the Holy Spirit, and we need to be careful not to. Um, but the reason that that's probably the case is because the Spirit's primary role is to glorify Jesus um, by testifying to his kingdom and his saving work, past, present, and future. Uh, so John 16, uh, 13 through 14, this is what um, Jesus says about this. It says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I say to you that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So, so here Jesus is speaking of the Spirit's role to glorify him, to take what he has and make it known to us. 
just as Jesus took what the Father had and made it known to, to us through his, his work and teaching that regard. So the whole Trinity is involved in this, right? What the Father has, what the Son has, the Son reveals the Father, the Spirit reveals Christ and the Father. Um, but there is a particular work of glorifying Christ in the ministry of the Spirit. So one last chart from the ESV study Bible that I pulled out for you guys. Um, this is how the Spirit glorifies Christ. There's four main ways that we, that we see. And we'll just walk through each of these passages. Um, the Spirit illumines the Bible. The Spirit is, is active in our lives in helping us read this and understand it. And if, if I can just give you some encouragement, when you go to read the Bible, um, and I don't always do this, um, but I, I, I need to, and I try to when, I, when I'm confronted with it, I try to repent and, and move on. But we need to ask the Spirit for his help to help us understand the Bible. We, we, really, we really can't get to the meaning of it without the Spirit's help to guide us and lead us to Jesus. So this is the centrality of Christ. Um, if you look, look over at Luke 24, this is where this is taught to us. Uh, a couple different verses there. Uh, verse 27. And then uh, it says, uh, Jesus says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So that verse is simply telling us that the, that the Bible is centrally about Jesus. And we, we talk about this at Springbrook all the time. This is our thing, right? That the Bible is about Jesus. The Old Testament points to him. The New Testament points back at him. He's the central figure in the whole thing. Uh, then getting down to verse 44 um, through 48, it says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance um, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So he's talking about sending the Holy Spirit to them from the Father, from himself and the Father. And he's telling them to stay in the city of Jerusalem until they are clothed with power from on high, which means the Holy Spirit is going to indwell them and empower them for the ministry. But the Spirit of God is what illuminates our hearts to the Bible. It's one way he glorifies Christ. Secondly, the Spirit empowers gospel preaching, which is the proclamation of Christ. Here's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says, um, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So just before his ascension, he tells the disciples, you're going to get the Holy Spirit and he's going to empower you to be my witnesses, to proclaim who I am to, to all of these people throughout the world. 
So the Spirit does that work to empower. Thirdly, the Spirit brings regeneration, which is new life in Christ. Spirit is the one who brings about the new birth uh, that Jesus talks about here in John chapter 3. So John 3, we know John 3.16, of course, is the most famous verse in the Bible. Um, But in that section, he's speaking to Nicodemus in this whole section about about how to be brought into God's kingdom. And uh, in, in verse 5 through 8, so Nicodemus is not understanding this. In verse 3, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is like, well, how do you do that? Like, how do I get, how do I get back in the womb and be born again? He doesn't understand. And then he says, verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind, and the word wind in Greek is the same word for spirit. So it could be translated the spirit. Blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes or where it goes. So is everyone so with everyone who is born of the spirit so so he's making this analogy and that's why they translate it wind and not spirit even though it is technically the same word uh, because jesus is talking about the wind um as an analogy for how we don't know where it's coming from we don't know where it's going it's just moving right along and so is so it is with the spirit who makes us born again Um, so he brings about regeneration new life in in christ And then finally, um, the Spirit glorifies Christ by sanctifying, making the believers more and more like Jesus, transforming us into the image of Christ. Uh, So Romans 8, 29, and then 1 John 3, 2 are the examples they give there. But let me show you Romans 8, uh, 29. It says, For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, so there we're being told that we are, the purpose of our salvation is to help us conform to the image of Jesus. But in this whole context of Romans 8, we're talking about the spirit of God doing this work in us. So uh, we're seeing that, being connected to the Spirit of Christ as well. And then 1 John 3, 2, real quickly, and this is where we'll, we'll wrap her up tonight. Um, 1 John 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So again, the whole purpose of the Christian life is to make us like Jesus. But we need to recognize that the work of the Spirit is to help us get there. That's why Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 6 with the fruit of the Spirit. That's the whole thing. Like he's conforming us by the Spirit. As we walk with the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And so that's the, the work of Jesus conform, transforming us into the image of Christ. So uh, that's, in the nutshell, uh, in an hour and a half, uh, what the Holy Spirit, doctrine of the Holy Spirit entails. 
a lot more that could be said. Corey's available for questions afterwards. But uh, are there any questions, though, for, for serious? Uh, I, anything I can clarify on that? Yeah. Well, first I have a comment. Yeah. And I think um, just observation in my life, I think that we do not recognize the Holy Spirit working in our life probably the way we should. Just somebody who says, oh, I've, I've been told to say, Lazarus, come forward. That's pretty huge. But I think there's times when you, you're at a crossroad or you didn't feel like maybe being nice or giving grace to somebody and all of a sudden you found yourself turning the other cheek mm. or whatever. It's pretty hard that was the Holy Spirit pushing mm. you, you know, the right way. Yeah. Um, I agree. It, yeah. yeah, so I think it's more active in our life if we were to step back yeah. and say, hmm, Absolutely. My uh, question is, how is the proper way to pray to the Holy Spirit? Are we to ask God, or are we to lean more into the Holy Spirit, be like, be more active in my life? Are we praying to Him? I mean, we're we're always praying to God and Jesus. So, do we pray to Him? Do we do we pray to God to bring Him into our life? How do we yeah. push that? That's a good question. Uh, so, I don't think it's wrong to pray to any one of the members of the Trinity. It, it's appropriate. It's, they, they all, it all go into the same place at the end of the day. Okay, so who you address isn't as crucial. The, the formula that I've tried to use and so we pray to the Father um, in Jesus' name by the, by the Spirit, through the Spirit, like leading us, guiding us to what we should pray. So I, I typically, I mean, some, I interchange. Sometimes I'll address Jesus, but most of the time I try to address the Father and then um, recognize that Jesus is who gives me the right to even speak to the Father. But it's the Spirit who then applies Jesus' work to me. So uh, that's not answering your question, but I think, I, I think it's just one of those things that it's, it's appropriate to, to ask the Father and, or to ask Christ to help you see more of the Spirit, to help you understand his, his leading and His guiding. I think all that's appropriate. I think it's appropriate to ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand the Bible. If you're going to open your Bible one morning and say, I, I don't understand this, Holy Spirit, would you help me understand this? I, I did that today, like just today, because that's what you, you have to do that. And, there are, and that's one of the roles that the Spirit plays, is He actually illuminates or opens our hearts and minds to understand the Scripture. So... Um, yeah, so does that help at all? And, yeah, I think maybe depending upon your situation, yeah. what you lead to. Yeah. You know, if, if you say, oh, Holy Spirit, I need mm-hmm. you, or Jesus, I guess maybe yeah. what you're led to is okay then? Yeah, don't I would say so. I would agree with that, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'd also just say to her question, that you, what you said earlier was about how it don't matter if we're really praying right because the Holy Spirit's the one that fixes that. Yeah. And that's true. When he intercedes for us, he, he does bring all of our requests to the Father, ultimately. Um, and so, yeah, we, we may say things that aren't quite accurate or right or true because we, we still have sinful tendencies as, as human beings. But the Holy Spirit's the one who's going to go, ah, you shouldn't have prayed that way. I'll pray this way for you, and that'll, that'll get you going. You know? And that's a good thing. Like We should encourage that and welcome that in our lives. So. I think there's two things with that, and, and the one is we have to remember that, that God is a lot bigger than we are and has accepted me as rotten as I am, and mm. all my, all my uh, 
not meeting up to his standard, if I don't pray just right, he's not going to go, ah, you're yeah. off. So there's a lot of grace and a lot of mercy, and that's where you were talking about legalism. We can get in here and we can hammer out, oh, if you don't do this and don't do that, and God is not that way. But on the other hand, as we learn the scriptures and as we follow the scriptures, what you were saying is, is found in the word of God that we pray to the Father in the name of the Son. And then I was going to make the comment that we don't pray to the Holy Spirit. That's generally not found, but I think the way that you mentioned it is still is scriptural. So I would have been a little wrong on that already. Uh, but again, God is big enough that we don't have to have everything perfect. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's good. All right. I'll pray for us. Then we'll head home. Thank you guys for joining us. Father, thank you for giving us the the evening to talk about uh, the Holy Spirit and um, the work that he's done to seal our salvation and uh, the the ways in which he empowers us and makes us more like like Jesus. And so we, we ask for your help now to take anything that I may have said that isn't right and uh, and help us forget those things and those those things that need to be remembered. Would you help to seal those things in our hearts as we leave tonight? And we, uh, we just pray that you would get all the glory uh, and that we would be more and more empowered by your spirit to go forward and, and to live this life that you've called us to. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.